This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Early shell, early shell, from the ocean, from the ocean, shining in the sun, shining in the sun, covering the shore, covering the shore, when you see them. We thought that might be an appropriate and lovely piece of music to start today's program with because yours truly had the opportunity and privilege to travel this past week to the Sandwich Islands. Or as the archipelago was subsequently renamed, appropriately, the Hawaiian Archipelago. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that today, but I did note that that song, Pearly Shells, was co-opted by a company that used to make sugar in Hawaii. I believe it was the C&H company, which must still be around because when you cross the Carquinas Bridge and you look off to the right, last time I checked, there was still a big sign saying C&H. Not sure how this can be because, as far as I understand it, they don't make sugar in Hawaii anymore. The last of the sugarcane fields, at least on the island of Kauai, have, have shut down. Maybe they're still making it on Maui. I don't think so. I think foreign labor costs have driven American sugar production right out of business down there, which is, I don't know, maybe a good thing. It was a bit of a brutal enterprise. Although, as I understand it, it did bring my family, at least one portion of it, from the island of Madeira to the Hawaiian Archipelago, to take part in the management of the sugarcane fields. I guess I was kind of musing on this, thinking about the fact that back in the day, there used to be ads on television advertising for why this brand of sugar, I'm not sure which one it was, was better, was that it was pure cane sugar from Hawaii. Or my mom pointing out that whether it was cane sugar or beet sugar didn't really matter. In the end, it was sugar, the same identical substance. And if I may digress slightly, this recalls my food science class I took many years ago at UC Davis where they talked about developments in food processing, etc. And by the way, in some future program, we are going to talk about the sugar industry, particularly the sugar cane industry and how it affected world history. We made some allusion to that last week in talking about Alexander Hamilton and how important back in the day it was to move molasses and rum one way, slaves another way, and plant sugar. And that was the key to the triangle of trade between Europe Africa, and North America. As I recall from food science, they put out a request. I think it was Napoleon, perhaps. I'm not sure about that part. But they did ask back around the time of Napoleon to to find a substitute for cane sugar because there was a war going on. The French and the British were always fighting each other and cutting off trade and, you know, raiding each other's ships and This apparently disrupted the sugar trade, and someone needed a more reliable source near at home, near to home in Europe, and thus it was that the sugar beet was discovered to have wonderful concentrations of sugar, and this substituted rather nicely for cane. As a boy, I can remember so well the sugar beet factory in what is today Union City. It was then the town of Alvarado in the East Bay. And as kids, when we would walk along the railroad tracks, we would find beets that had fallen off the trains. Someone told me you could take them home and cook them, but we never did. Anyway, Mr. Merlin, make a note of this. We need to talk about sugar at some future date. Now, one natural segue to talk about travel is that yours truly likes to take a book 
or magazine or many on board the aircraft rather than watching the popular entertainment that's provided for us. And as part of our follow-up on last year's show where we talked to St. John Hunt, the son of spymaster E. Howard Hunt of Watergate fame, who uh, was a fairly successful author of spy novels. We decided to read the work of Ian Fleming, who's supposed to be the master of spy novels. He, of course, the father of James Bond. There's something like a dozen James Bond books out there, so I went on the web to see them rated from top to bottom. The website I stumbled upon claimed that uh, you could scarcely do better than to look at Moonraker as possibly the best James Bond book, although Casino Royale was ranked number three. Well... I got both of them, read both of them, and decided that they were both, in the end, a colossal waste of time. Yeah, I know they made a a few movies based on this James Bond character, but, you know, in the end, I think that a lot of harm has been done by this supernatural spy figure, who, when you get right down to it, is only, I think, a half-step removed from Batman in terms of realism. But it seems to me that somehow James Bond has become a standard... uh, of comparison for intelligence activities. No doubt some of the real-life activities of intelligence agencies, such as our own CIA, rival the sort of antics one finds in a James Bond novel. But I think people are sometimes reluctant that that could possibly be an explanation because it just seems so far-fetched. At any rate, I'll be taking these books back to the used bookstore in my town, being that there are no major bookstore outlets anymore. In a town of 200,000 people. Thanks in no small part to the good work of Amazon and other internet purveyors of books and everything else. A topic which we will spend a little bit of time on on today's program. Well, you know, one thing we haven't done is our traditional method of using quips and quotes and anecdotes and jokes and all that. I think on today's program, we're going to do that. Starting with a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson, former Radio Parallax guest... We would refer you to our archives at info at Radio Parallax to hear our interview with Dr. Tyson talking about his book on Pluto. He was also designated as the go-to guy to host the latest incarnation of Cosmos. I've been watching the original with Carl Sagan of late and, imp- and, imp- and, imp- and remain impressed by the science that Carl Sagan did in the early 80s and how it still stands up. He took many swipes at uh, bogus science, such as creationism, and it's terrifying to note that in the last three decades, the battle against this sort of nonsense appears to be going the wrong way. At any rate, the quote is, The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. And this naturally sets up the segue to our quip of the day, which is from an even more famous scientist, Niels Bohr. And yes, I know we've done this two or three times before, but we're doing it one more. The setup is this. Niels Bohr had a horseshoe nailed up outside of his office. A visitor to the legendary physicist noted the horseshoe and said, Professor Bohr, surely you don't believe that a horseshoe brings you good luck? To which Bohr replied, of course not. But I understand it works whether you believe it or not. For our joke of the day, I think we're going to go with what former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer had to say in making a surprise appearance at the Emmys. Tongue-in-cheek, Spicer addressed his audience and said, this will be the largest audience to witness an Emmys, period. This, of course, is a joking reference to the time he made false claims about Trump's inaugural crowd, which the president insisted was larger than President Obama's. 
It was noted in the Week magazine that Spicer's cameo, which is reportedly the brainchild of host Stephen Colbert, provoked a storm of angry social media posts from Democrats and liberal celebrities who accused the show's producers of helping to quote-unquote normalize the many lies Spicer told as Trump spokesman. This caused me to think that, you know, people sometimes just need a little sense of humor, perhaps along with a kick in the ass. Our stat of the day, apparently for the first time in 300 years, not a single person is living on the island of Barbuda. The 62-square-mile Caribbean island was ravaged by Hurricane Irma, which obliterated 95% of the island's homes and infrastructure and forced all 1,700 residents to evacuate. We have not confirmed it, but we presume that they have all now moved to Antigua, where they have all set up international banks. For our good news item on this week's show, we would note that returning to television after a long hiatus is what is surely one of the funniest shows ever to air Curb Your Enthusiasm, often referred to as the Larry David Show. What is being billed as the final season, although some say it may stretch into two seasons, will air Sunday night on HBO. We plan to watch. We're especially keen to see what will happen when J.B. Smoove returns to the airways as Leon. It is a wonderful ensemble with Susie Essman and Jeff Garland, Ted Danson, Bob Einstein, Cheryl Hines, etc. Let's hope that Larry David makes the most of it. And for our anecdotes, we're going to go to a discussion on homeopathy, which appeared in New Scientist magazine. Apparently there's some regulatory difficulties going on with homeopathy and alleged remedies over in the UK. And as a solution to this, someone wrote, new scientists suggest that an option would be to simply label them as confectionery. A man named Alan Hennis wrote in to say, well, maybe they could add real ingredients to give them different flavors. To which the editor said, well, better yet, why not cut out the middleman and just sell the labels to be attached to whatever substance the customer wishes to empower with some homeopathic potential? And, by the way, if you didn't hear our interview with author Simon Singh about his wonderful book, which he authored alongside Edzard Ernst, titled Trick or Treatment, well, you can find that on our website, radioparallax.com. Just type in Simon Singh and you'll be able to hear it if you missed it the first time. But in a second anecdote, also from the letters section of New Scientist related to homeopathy, we have this. A man named James Fragile wrote in to say that the Russians got there first. Fragile said that shortly after the collapse of the USSR, I was asking about the wines that a Russian supplier had, and the reply was, what do you want? James then discovered that the supplier printed the labels after getting an order on the assumption that the buyer wouldn't know the difference. And for a third plug back to our archives, we would refer you to our interview with the legendary magician James Randi and what he had to say about homeopathic remedies. As you may recall, if you heard it when it aired, yours truly assisted the magician up on the stage as he took a so-called overdose, quote-unquote, of a homeopathic sleep aid. He suffered no ill effects. In In fact, he suffered no effects at all. Since homeopathic remedies brag about the fact that the active ingredients are diluted to the tune of trillions or quadrillions. In fact, the homeopathic remedy that is really considered to be strong is one in which there's been so many dilutions that not one single molecule of the original compound remains. How anybody expects this to be effective, we don't know. But to do so, it has to run counter 
to the understanding we have in the modern world of chemistry, biochemistry, physiology, and physics. So as you might imagine, this correspondent was rather dismayed to get a glossy brochure sent to me as part of continuing medical education. Doctors are expected to maintain so many units of CE a year, 25 to have a license in California. So people that put on these events um, seek your patronage. And of course, like anything else, they vary in quality. The one that arrived recently for clinical the one that arrived recently for clinical homeopathy would rank somewhere near the bottom of the barrel of quality. And yet as I hold this brochure in my hand, I note that they are having these events in Vancouver, Chicago, Toronto, San Francisco, Baltimore, New York, Los Angeles, Houston, and Fort Lauderdale. That's nine different locations, and the event is being held in each place eight times. Thus, at minimum, there will be 72 events in the 2017-2018 season across the nation, wherein doctors are peddled homeopathy. According to the brochure, you can stack up up to 34 hours of four independent modules to gain 136 hours of continuing medical education on this exercise in fantasy. But stop. It gets way worse. Not only can your doctor stack up years worth of alleged continuing medical education based on this nonsense, the nonsense is going mainstream, at least at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. As a graduate of the UC Irvine California College of Medicine, I am horrified to report the following. Under the headline, UC Irvine aims to transform public health with record-breaking $200 million donation, I would quote the article by Teresa Wantanabe. Susan Samueli caught a cold while visiting France more than three decades ago. Instead of the usual medicines which I would interject at the moment, admittedly do not cure the common cold, a friend suggested aconite, a homeopathic remedy derived from a plant in the buttercup family. Noted the author of the piece, Teresa Watanabe, she was cured. Wait, she was cured of the common cold or she got better? Because, as you've no doubt noted, dear listener, when you get a cold, you generally get better. But no, Susan became a lifelong advocate of homeopathy and other alternative healing methods to complement conventional medicine. Her husband, Henry, the billionaire co-founder of Broadcom, the Irvine semiconductor maker, says he was initially skeptical, but found the integrative health approach helped him easily shake off colds and flus and kept their children healthy without antibiotics. Well, if you've got a cold, I admit, you shouldn't be given antibiotics. Colds are caused by a myriad of viruses as a general rule, and we really don't have, at this point in time, in the year 2017, much in the way of antiviral antibiotics. As an aside, I would note that while I was in a pharmacy a couple days ago, I noted various immune boosters being sold, quote-unquote immune boosters. I looked at the the label to to note that most of them are multivitamins. How the FDA lets them get away with calling those immune boosters, I don't know. But anyway, back to the article by Teresa Wantanabe. 
Now the couple's passion for integrative health has led to the largest donation ever made to UC Irvine. On Monday, UC Irvine Chancellor Howard Gilman announced that the Samuelis had donated $200 million to launch what he billed as the nation's first university-wide enterprise to embed integrative health approaches in research, teaching, and patient care. The article then quotes Henry Somelli, who, who, by the way, also owns the Anaheim Ducks, as saying, the human body is very complex. The human body is a very complex and highly interconnected system. Therefore, our healthcare needs need to be looked at through a more holistic lens. Our genetics, our surrounding environment, our nutrition, our physical activity, and our mental state all play critical roles in our well-being. Well, granted... But, of course, homeopathy remains. But, of course, homeopathy is still quackery. Earmarked to this gift, the seventh largest ever made to to a U.S. public university is about $50 million for a new building to house the College of Health Sciences, which will bear the Samueli name. Yes, it appears that we're going to have to go back to UC Irvine and interview someone down there to talk about this. Topping my list would be my favorite professor of medicine at UC Irvine, Dr. James Fallon, which allows us for, I think, a record-breaking fourth time to refer to our archives at Radio Parallax for our wonderful interview with Dr. Fallon about his book, The Psychopath Inside. I'll bet dollars to donuts Dr. Fallon has a thing or two to say about uh, homeopathy winding its way into the medical school at UCI. By the way, Mr. Millen is highly suspicious about the link between the Anaheim Ducks and Orange County Quackery. He does plan to look into that as soon as his beaver relocation project is is all tidied up. Anyway, I have so much that I want to rail about today. How about this national anthem controversy? Donald Trump thinks that if you don't stand at the na- during the national anthem at a sporting event, your team should fire you. Someone has suggested that if you want to have compulsory observance, someone has pointed out that if you want to have some compulsory observance of uh, national symbols, well, you know, you could try North Korea. And we have to give a doff of the cap to Andy Borowitz, and, and who in the wake of President Trump referring to Kim Jong-un as Rocket Man, Borowitz suggested that in a battle of Elton John lyrics, Kim Jong-un has in turn referred to President Trump as Honky Cat. We need to talk about Facebook and uh, the power that's accruing to Amazon and Google and Facebook. We'll do that in our second segment. Instead, let's go to one of our perennial favorites, the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week recently for loose lips after White House lawyer Ty Cobb, yes, I guess his name is Ty Cobb, loudly discussed the Mueller investigation at a Washington, D.C. steakhouse with a New York Times reporter sitting at the next table. Cobb apparently was overheard saying, among other things, that the White House had a couple of documents locked in a safe that Mueller might want. Well, thanks for the tip, Mr. Cobb. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for freedom of speech, we would say, with the news that more than 100 faculty members at UC Berkeley 
called for a boycott of all classes during Free Speech Week. The four-day event, starting September 24th, will feature right-wing speakers Steve Bannon, Ann Coulter, and Milo Yiannopoulos. The faculty said students should not risk their physical and mental safety in such a hostile environment. You know, protests by their very nature are oftentimes hostile environments. The universities are supposed to be bastions wherein various ideas of every different stripe get aired. Even stupid ones. Doesn't seem reasonable to us that you're going to stay home from classes because a right-wing jerk is speaking on campus. It has been reported that a lot of people looking for trouble have been showing up at these events to smash windows and, and the like, and there's probably some truth to that. But personally, I'm not sure how that differs much from the protest movements that took place back in the 60s. And in a perhaps not completely unrelated item, we would note that it was an ugly week last week for growing up after a study has revealed that today's teens are taking longer to embrace what are described as traditional symbols of adulthood, like getting a driver's license, drinking, dating, and apparently having sex, though the article didn't say so. Apparently, the study's author, Gene Twenge, said the whole developmental pathway has slowed down. And by the way, are you outraged over the fact that John McEnroe said some time back that Serena Williams, if she were playing men, would probably rank something like 700 in the world? I was outraged. I don't think she'd break the top 1,000. Well, there you go. I'm not going to disagree with my producer. Well, we are going to go out and check out the Battle of the Sexes because the legendary 1973 battle, quote-unquote, between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs was just such a great example of, I don't know, P.T. Barnum revisited here in America that, uh, frankly, we, we have to see it. And we'll report on it, I think, on next week's program. This does remind me of an ad. I think it ran back in the mid-'70s where Billie Jean King was talking about how she liked to fly this or that airline, and as she was boarding the aircraft, she goes down the aisle and bumps into, yes, Bobby Riggs, who doesn't say a word, but Billy Jean just kind of goes, ugh. And I don't recall whether that was a Boeing 747, but we do note that reportedly, a November 7th United flight from San Francisco to Honolulu will be the last flight of the Boeing 747 jumbo jet by a U.S. airline. Delta and United were the last two U.S. airlines to continue flying these so-called Queen of the Skies. 747s have been gradually replaced by more efficient twin-engine jets. Delta's final 747 flight took place this month. By the way, we take the position here on Radio Parallax, um, influenced by our late aviation correspondent Vladimir Zarevica, that it is safe to fly a Boeing 747. Vlada was very high on uh, Boeing products. And although he would not commit to saying it on the air, he scoffed at the notion of the study done back 20 years ago that concluded that Boeing 747s do occasionally spontaneously explode. That, of course, was the official explanation of the U.S. government about what happened to TWA Flight 800 back in 1997. The center fuel tank just blew up. They do that sometimes. Since no retrofitting was ever done to the 747s in the wake of this official conclusion, I think it's safe to say that that was bogus. And if you ask anyone in the aviation industry, uh, I think you'll find that they agree. But that's a topic for another day. We have a few minutes left for this segment. I think we should do some follow-up on uh, our Alexander Hamilton chat on last week's program. The book was Alexander Hamilton Revolutionary. The author was Martha Brokenbro. We concluded by talking about the changing of Alexander Hamilton's 
face on U.S. currency. As far as that change goes, we'd like to quote The Economist magazine, September 16th issue, <laughs> noting, as the magazine did, that it would be hard to find a better example of long-term gridlock in Washington than its treatment of banknotes, whose appearance has been essentially frozen since 1929. Barack Obama took a half-hearted step toward a new look, proposing the replacement of Alexander Hamilton's portrait on the $10 bill with a portrait of Harriet Tubman, a former slave who became a Civil War hero. Problems cropped up at once. It seemed ludicrous to scrap the portrait of the one person on a note who helped create America's financial system, and it did not help that he was also the hero of a smash hit Broadway musical. So the administration decided instead to replace Andrew Jackson. Well, since then, Donald Trump has lent his support to keeping Jackson. The magazine does note that it it is odd that Jackson, of all people, ever appeared on a note backed by the central bank, let alone survived so long. Upon taking office, Andrew Jackson declared war on what was then the nation's central bank. He thought it beyond beyond proper congressional oversight and was too influential and was just too damned influential, the criticism often made of its successor today. He certainly was an important and forceful figure in American history, but... I think it could be said he wasn't a very nice guy. Just ask the descendants of the Indians whom he had moved from Florida to Oklahoma. You know, I think if you force anybody to move from Florida to Oklahoma, they're going to have some things to say. And as one final item that we probably shouldn't do, but we're going to do anyway, we've worked a lot of people over the years with our um, denigration of mathematics, at least as how it is taught or how it has been taught for the last generation or so. Our statement that math, being taught the way it's been taught, probably should be a felony, has not sat well with a lot of people. So let's do a mathematics story, which I have plucked at random from the pages of New Scientist. Note of the magazine, a summary of a massive mathematical proof that has baffled mathematicians for the past five years, aims to help people get to grips with the key idea. Now how long is this explanation? Well, it's just 300 pages. The original proof, says the magazine, is a long-standing ABC conjecture that explores the deep nature of numbers, centered on the simple equation A plus B equals C. The conjecture has been thought for some time to be true, and in 2012, Shinichi Mochizuki of Kyoto University produced a proof to settle the matter. Unfortunately, it was 500 pages long and developed a whole new type of mathematics called interuniversal Techmuller Theory, I-U-T, that nobody at the time could really understand. Since then, two conferences have tried to get a grip on the work, and some mathematicians have made progress, but because I-U-T is so different from other mathematical approaches, much of the language is what's described as unfamiliar to the field. Mochizuki refuses to travel outside Japan to help explain his work, and his written explanations have been described as impenetrable. Thus it was, to help clear things up, Go Yamashita, a colleague of Mochizuki at Kyoto University, has written his 300-page summary that tries to clarify some of the language. New scientists quoted Mi Hong Kim at the University of Oxford as saying, about the summary, the language strikes me as substantially more accessible than that of the original paper. Others are apparently not so sure. Felipe Voloch at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. I don't expect it will help clear up the matter. It's very much the same style of Mochizuki's writing. 
Mochizuki and his group can't seem to communicate, and nobody from outside has any success in understanding the details. Magazine concludes by noting, for the time being, the ABC conjecture is likely to remain in limbo because no journal has been willing to publish it, which is the final stamp of approval as a proof. Lex suggests that we put these mathematics on to solving the problem of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.